Yeah, there you have it. Okay, well, this is what we call a shiur p'ticha. So just a little bit of a history to it. Uh, in the yeshivot, uh, the common custom is that when a new masachet is started, typically at the beginning of a zman, the beginning of a semester, the Rosh Hashiva gives a shiur on a topic near the beginning of the masachet, but makes it broad and sort of a general introduction to the masachet. Uh, I still remember Rav Luchenstein and Zatzal's Shiurei Pticha, which were attended by people from all over the country. They would come in, uh, typically Bogrim, typically alumni of the yeshiva, but they were in all sorts of positions, would come in for the Shiurei Pticha, because Shiurei Pticha itself was two and a half, three hours, and then Rav Luchenstein would go through the Masechet, and then he would talk about the important Rishonim on the Masechet, and those who were the, perhaps unique to the Masechet, and it was really a, a, a thing to behold. Um, the uh, I was fortunate that I was actually in the yeshiva a week and a half ago with my son learning, preparing for the shur p'ticha, because they began, even though it's the end of the zman, they began the study of Masachat Sukkah um, this past week or last week. And so the shur p'ticha that the one of the Rosh Yeshiva was going to give um, was the sources were handed out. You prepare the sources together. And uh, was particularly delightful for me when I was sitting about one row away from my old makom from a long, long time ago. And sitting with your son learning in the same Beit Midrash is like, you can't, you cannot replicate that. Um, but in any case, uh, so what I'd like to do is to look at the enterprise, the institution of Yibum from a global perspective and touch on some of the key topics that are afflicting us and I do mean afflicting us, uh, here at the beginning of the Masachet, uh, and one topic that's going to hit us square on at the beginning of the second parak, but it is core really to understanding how Yibum works. I cannot promise to cover everything, but I'll try to at least give a, a broad inter, uh, introduction to Yibum. Yibum starts with a parasha in Kitetse, not far before, not much before the parasha of Zachor, it's in the same parak. We'll take a look at it together, translate it, and comment along the way. So if brothers dwell together, and that already has a halachic impact, one of them dies without a son. Now, by the way, there's nothing in here that says at this point that this guy was married. The guy died without a son. But then immediately marriage is brought in. The wife of the dead guy should not go out to a foreign man. Rather, her Yavam should have relations with her. And take her as a wife and be miyabim her. Whatever Yibum may mean. And we're going to see something about that a little later on. So first of all, what do we see here? We see the idea of brethren dwelling together, how beautiful that is. Um, and one of them dies without a son. And at this point, again, there's no mention of this man having been married or having had the opportunity. He could have been five years old and died without having had children. But then we introduce the Aisha Tamait, the fact that this guy did have a wife and that she now should not leave the family and marry somebody else, rather her Yavam, which is presumably the living brother, because in this context, it seems like there's only two brothers and now one, should have relations with her, take her as a wife and be miyabim her. Now, the language here 
is both cluttered and a little misdirected. Yevamayavoaleha should be all we need. The Yavam should have relations with her. Instead, the Torah adds, Ulakaha and then take her as a wife. It sounds like first you have relations with her, then you take her as a wife, and then have relations with her. So the sequence is a little bit odd. And that opens the door to uh, expanding the um, relationship uh, perspective uh, that happens between the Avam and the Shomer Yavam and the, wo- the woman. Okay, and again, just raising the, presenting the, the Psukim and raising the issues. Now, this one is thorny. So, literal translation, the firstborn that she gives birth to, now, of course, this is assuming that the brother that is the Yavam is able to impregnate her. And the Bechor that she gives birth to, Yakum al-Shem What does that mean? So a literary, tra- a literal translation, but a bad literal translation, uh, to be accurate, is he should take the name of the dead brother, which would mean that if Yehuda and Reuven are brothers, Reuven and Shimon, let's get back to that. Reuven and Shimon are brothers. Reuven dies. Shimon marries Reuven's wife, that the son should be named Reuven. That's what it sounds like. But if that were the case, what, how, would, how should the Pasuk read? What should be the next word? Yikra. Yikra, exactly. Exactly. Not Yakum means he will stand in the place of, and there is no mention of a name. Now, what continue, what adds to the misleading is the following. His name should not be wiped out from Israel. Whose name? The name of the dead father, who's not really the father. Right? So that's why we think we're going to call this kid by the name. All right? We're going to take a look at Ramban in a little bit, and that's going to kind of put that to rest. Okay. So, so far we've got the context, which is the brothers living together. The proximate cause, which is the death of a man childless and who is married. And the rule that his wife should stay in. And then the next step, which is that she'll give birth to a boy. And by the way, is it only a boy? Have you fulfilled the mitzvah of Yibum when you've had a boy? When you've had, uh, it has to be a son. What if it's a daughter? What if just having relations? Is that the mitzvah? Right? And that that son will take the place somehow of his dead father, who's not his father. It's actually his dead uncle, if you think about it. And, his, and the name of the dead should not be lost. So let's say the man, and now this is what's curious, is how many brothers are in this picture? Two. So if there's two, then this works. Let's say the living brother doesn't want to marry her. Then, and by the way, how do we feel about this guy right now? Without just gut reaction, how do we feel about Shimon, who doesn't want to marry Reuven's wife? We're not thrilled with him because that's what he should do. And there's a noble reason attached to it, which is that it, the name of the dead brother shouldn't be lost. And I said, but if he doesn't want to do it, you know, we're not going to force him to do it. The Yavama now goes to the gate. Now remember the gate in Chumash and in all of Tanakh is the place where the court sits. 
comes to the elders. Notice what her accusation is. He says, My Avam, that brother-in-law of mine, refuses to raise the name of his brother, my former husband who died. He doesn't want to have Yibam with me. And now, so the elders call him and they talk to him. And ostensibly, they talk to him and try to talk him into it. Now, again, looking at the context, he stands up and says, Now, this is not a mitzvah. This continues with the case, meaning they call him and they speak to him. And it's almost as if, nonetheless, they weren't successful in convincing him. Nonetheless, he stands up and says, um, that I refuse, right? I don't want to. If So it sounds like we're doing everything we can to get him to do Yibu, but if he refuses, then we can't force him. And then, the uh, Yivama then approaches him in front of the Zekenim, which means who's there? There's a Beit Din, there's the girl and the brother. She then removes his shoe from his foot, and we're going to come back to all of this. She spits in his presence. Bifanav doesn't mean in his face. It means she spits in his presence. The spitting is clearly an act of derision and, and, uh, and rejection. And she should then declare the following. This is something familiar because Purim is coming up. This is what happens to a man. This is how a man who refuses to build his brother's house is treated. He's shamed publicly. He's, he's spit on, not on, but near. He's derided. And this is what happens to a guy like this. And then, What's this guy called? This guy should now be called the house of the unshod shoe. In other words, this becomes his identity, the guy who did chalitza. And it's, a, it's like a stigma. Terrible thing. The guy won't keep his, keep his brother's name alive. The guy refuses to perpetuate his brother's family, etc. So that's the way that the simple reading of the text is. There's no question that from a simple reading of the text, Yibum is a virtuous act, and it's an act that demonstrates filial responsibility and, uh, sorry, and uh, uh, fraternal responsibility and commitment uh, and, um, and a desire to make sure that your dead brother's memory is not lost. Somehow it's going to be perpetuated through this next kid and through this family. Uh, and it raises a whole host of questions, many of which are beyond the scope of what we can do here. But just to, to put it in, why is it the case that only if he was married does this happen? And why don't we say that any man who dies without kids should have some memorial made to him where there would be some way of having kids that would, uh, why is it only if he was married, right? And by the way, if he was married and then got divorced and a day after he divorced, he died, that doesn't happen. Why not? Why is there no Yibum in that case? Also, why it, what happens to the girl here? In the text, what happens to the girl if he, if, he, uh, if he refuses to marry her? It doesn't say that she can then go marry somebody else. Now, we know, of course, Halacha, Halitza liberates her. But here, it just seems to be that she spits at him and says what she does. And he's called Beit Chalut Sanal, and it sounds like she may live as a perpetual laguna. So there's a lot here in this text that needs to be taken apart, and that's part of the reason why Masachet Yivamot is so thorny and so long in its discussions, because there's so many different angles to what's going on. The truth is that, that 
Masachet Yivamot, I'm going to skip ahead to a little bit of the overview. Masachet Yivamot is really three Masachtot. There's the first few prakim, which are about the intricacies of relationships, which we're about to get to in the, in the daf, uh, about uh, which came first. Did you We saw a little bit of this today. The two brothers married the two sisters. Which brother married his wife first? How that impacts on, I say, the halot, I say, et cetera. But um, the, the next part of the Masachet is a broad introduction to the whole issue of Arayot, the definition of Arayot. By the way, there's a very big sugya there about giur, about conversion. And that morphs then into sugyot having to do with the laws of Kohanim vis-a-vis Yichusim. Uh, there's, of course, a whole passage towards the end of Masachet about Chalitza. But then there's a broad, several prakim about aguna and about what we call edut isha, testimony that a man has died so that the woman can remarry, etc. So Yavomot is big, Yavomot covers a lot of territory. Uh, what we're looking at is the main topics of the first part of the Masachet, which really focus on the issue of Yibum. I even put in on the source sheet a short lexicon of a few key words that are unique Yavomot words, so we should be familiar with them. We'll take a look at them as we go along. Okay, back to the, the Psukim. What's particularly troubling about Yibum is that, and this, of course, is the Sugya that we're in the middle of on the, on the daily, on the Daf, is that Yibum, in Yibum, God is commanding you to do something which God otherwise commanded you to avoid. In other words, your brother is married, your brother dies. Now, in what circumstances does death change an erva relationship? Meaning, your father marries a woman, not your mom. Your father marries a woman. Your father then disappears from the picture, and let's make it simple, he dies. Are you allowed to marry that woman? The answer is no. In other words, his death doesn't change anything. Your son marries a woman. Your son dies. Are you allowed to marry that woman? The answer is no. His death doesn't change anything. There's only one erva for whom death of the connector changes things. So let me quickly introduce what I mean by connector. All arayot are either consanguinity or they're not. Now, I know that's a tautology and it's a little unfair, but all arayot are either consanguinity or not, meaning they are either because of a direct blood relation like sister, like mother, like daughter, or they're because that person is, is kin to somebody you're related to, such as your wife's sister, your wife's daughter, your wife's mother. In none of those cases do you have blood relation with them. You're forbidden because of the relationship. Now, consanguinity obviously is not going to change because of death, because if either one of you die, there's nothing to talk about. Dead people can't have relations. There's some rule about that. However, uh, prohibitions, which are due to an in-law relation, meaning a relation which is about three people. There's the man, there is the woman, and the man and woman are connected via some other relation, like this woman married that man's son, this woman married that man's father, this woman is the sister of this man's wife, etc. So you have three people, 
the death of the middleman doesn't change anything. All right, that's what we we're saying before. So if uh, if a man's father marries a woman, the death, the the prohibition of that woman is because of the father. If the father dies, nothing changed. She was married to my father. I'm not allowed to have relations with her. There's only one exception to that rule, and that is your wife's sister. Right, and we're going to actually see it right now. That's the only exception. However, your brother's wife is always prohibited to you. So if your brother was married to Susie and your brother dies, you may not marry Susie. That's a very big erva. It's a very big prohibition. And here it is, ervat eshet achicha lo source two. Uh, parenthetically, the euphemism the Torah uses for sexual relations is uncovering nakedness. It goes back to Ham, of course. Ervat eshet achicha lo Do not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. Ervat achichahi, because that's your brother's ervat. Right, and that would mean, of course, that if your brother was married to Susie and they had three lovely children, and your brother was all in, killed in a car crash, you may not marry Susie ever. The death of your brother doesn't change that. And yet, the Torah comes along and says, if your brother dies without kids, then you must marry Susie. Pretty interesting. All right. Now, one other pasuk to look at, which is the one exception to the rule that erayot don't change due to death of the middleman, and that is this one. It's the exception. Do not take a woman and her sister. Don't take them together. This seems to be kind of a response to Yaakov, if you think about it. Litzror, and Litzror has two implications. One is to tie together, and one is to create enmity. To reveal this one's nakedness over this one, while she's alive. And that's where the difference is. So if Ruvain marries Leah, he may not marry Rachel. I don't want to say Yaakov because I'm too hot water here. Ruvain marries Leah, he may not marry Rachel. If Leah dies, he may marry Rachel. That's the one exception where the middleman's death makes the erva permitted. Okay, good. There's one other passage in Tanakh that I want to look at, there's actually two passages, both in narrative that have to do with Yibum. And one of them is strange because it's Yibum, but not really Yibum. As far as we're concerned, what is the definition of Yibum? Two frater paternal brothers, paternal brothers, they share a father. And one dies without, one was married, dies without kids. The other one has the responsibility to take that man's wife have kids with her to keep his name alive. All right? There are two classic cases in Tanakh in narrative about Yibum. And one, the more popular one, is the story of Ruth. And yet Ruth isn't really Yibum, is it? Who is the guy in the story? Who's the man? What's his name? The man who's doing what? Boaz. Boaz. And who's the girl? Root. And how are Boaz and Root related? Not in any way whatsoever. Root used, to, and I don't ignore the issue of Root's conversion, which is a whole, whole anthill by itself. Root was married to Machlon. Machlon was the son of Elimelech. Elimelech was somehow related to Boaz, whether or not they're brothers or cousins, unclear. What we mean here is that Boaz is now taking a former 
cousin once removed or nephew or something like that's wife, not Yibum at all. But nonetheless, look at what happens here. Boaz addresses the court and all the people, and he uses social opprobrium to get what he wants here. And he says, if you're going to marry, he says to the Goel, if you're going to take the land, you also have to marry Ruth, Lahakim, Shem, Hamet, Al Nachlato, which makes it clear that this is about the spirit of Yibum, if not the law of Yibum. The idea is to keep the dead man's name alive on his property. And the dead man here we're talking about seems to be either Machlon or more likely Elimelech, Ruth's former father in law that she probably never met. Okay, now the interesting thing is, remember we talked at the beginning that the pedestrian view of the psukim is that when you have a boy, you're going to name the boy after the dead guy. That's what people think, right? So notice, and this is a good proof, the Ramban brings it, we'll see it later on, Ruth was married to a guy named Machlon, right? And now, in the end, what do they call the kid? They call the kid Oved. In other words, Boaz has relations with Ruth, he marries Ruth, he has relations with Ruth. We're seeing it as a form of Yibum. It seems to be the idea of Yibum, and yet, when the kid is born, the kid is not named Machlon. The kid is named Oved, some other name, who, by the way, is important because he's David's grandfather, right? So you see from here that the idea of sustaining the name is not about the name by which you call him, but sustaining the, the family, as it were. Okay. So I want to go to the other story of Yibum, which actually is much less famous, but it's more explicit as Yibum. It actually cuts right to the, to the soul of Yibum, and it raises some serious problems. And the first problem with it is that it happens before Matan Torah. Ruth, of course, is after Matan Torah. And that's the story of Yehuda. Yehuda, the man Yehuda, uh, as you know, leaves the family and goes to Timna and sets up shop and marries a girl who we don't know her name, but you know, her father's name is Shua, so marries about Shua, and they have three sons, Er, Onan, and then Shelah. And then Yehuda finds a wife who seems to be like one of the most amazing women in history, Tamar, to be the wife of Er. And Er, as you see in Pasuk Zion, is rotten and God kills him. Yehuda then speaks to Onan, who is the next brother, and says, Bo el eshet achicha, you see it in the yellow in source five, Bo el eshet achicha ve'yabem ota. He uses that word. That word, by the way, does not show up in root, even though the spirit seems to be evil. Here he uses the word, go to your brother's wife and do evil with her, and keep alive seed for your brother. Seems pretty clear what he's telling Onan to do, and that the purpose is to keep heirs progeny alive, heirs name alive somehow. All right, what happens? Onan kilo lo Onan realizes this kid won't be his. We're not sure what that means. This is very famous where this is where Onanism comes from. He uh, does quite interruptus, and then the full because he refuses to give any seed on behalf of his brother. God then kills Onan, and that leads to Shelah, and then Peretz and Zerach, and the rest is, of course, the history of David. But, by the way, both of these are in the background of David. But notice, um, first, Rashi, the, we use Rashi as a springboard to get to a vital Ramban in understanding Yibum. Rashi, in his commentary on the Torah, on the Pasuk Vakem Zerah, which is at the end of the of Pasuk Chet, 
that Yehuda says to his to his son, raise a child for your brother. Rashi says something very strange. He says, The son will take on the name of the dead guy. It's very strange that Rashi says that. So the Ramban here quotes it, and then he takes him to task. By the way, the Ramban had tremendous respect for Rashi, adoration for Rashi, and yet every time the Ramban quotes Rashi is to say, yes, but I disagree. There's no reason to quote Rashi and just say shkoyach. So here's what he says. Ve'en emet. He says, it's not true. Right. You don't call the kid by that name. Because after all, it's not just Yehudu said, keep alive the name of your brother. It's in the mitzvah that Moshe gave. The Avam is not commanded to call this kid by his dead brother's name. That, it's not the name. And he brings a proof from Ruth. In other words, the idea is to keep alive the name of the dead. And later on the parak, we find out the kid's name is not Machlon, it's Obed, what I pointed out. So you see that the mitzvah, the Ramban here is using the story of Ruth as a Yibum model and saying that in the story of Ruth, we know that her dead husband was Machlon. You could say that they're trying to keep alive the name of Elimelech. But in the meantime, they call the kid by some other name. So that calling the name doesn't mean the name that you're given. It means to have somebody propagated to continue in the family. <clears throat> also the story of Onan, that Onan knew that the kid wouldn't be his, and therefore he did what he did. What was so bad to Onan if you call the kid heir? That he did quite as interrupt us. To say, I have to call my kid by the, my dead brother's name? Most people would love to do something like that. Of course, most people aren't Aaron Onan, but it's not that Onan said, I know it won't be mine. He knew that it wouldn't be his kid's his kid. He understood this. That would not be considered his kid. Now, normally when the Ramban says that, I stop talking. Right? The Ramban who says Sod Gadol usually means going to the air of Kabbalah. And, okay, but here it's a little different. It's part of the inner workings of the Torah and its understanding about how people work. People who understand, people who have their senses about them, understand that. Watch what he says. The, the sages who existed before the Torah, they're wise people, before the Torah understood that there is a great advantage to having the brother step in and have relations with his dead brother's wife. And he should be first. Now, by the way, just I'm going to stop, pop in here. How does the story play out? Because it's vital for understanding this. The Ramban assumes that we know the story. Onan refused and Onan was killed. Yehuda then said to Tamar, go back and wait till Shelah grows up. But the text tells us that Yehuda had no intention of letting her get near Shelah. In the meantime, Tamar is the classic Aguna. 
Tamar then hears that Yehuda's own wife has died and he's looking for a little intimacy. And she goes and appears to be a available woman. And Yehuda, not knowing who she is, has relations with her. And um, then she leaves. Long story short, three months later, it's announced that Tamar is pregnant. Yehuda is enraged because Yehuda assumes now that Tamar has gone outside the family. Which, by the way, if you think about it, that's on him because he refused to let her have relations in the family. When Yehuda finds out that he's the father, nothing bad happens. Think about that. When Yehuda finds out, which means he did Yibum on his daughter-in-law, and that's fine. And by the way, from that come twins, the first of which is called Peretz, who you know very well because that's the family of David. So evidently, the father could do Yibum also on his son, on his son's wife, at least here. So watch the way the Ramban does this. He threads this needle beautifully. He says that everybody understands that it's ideal for the brother to be first, and afterwards, whoever's closer in the family, anyone who is kin, who will inherit from that, in that family, there'll be advantage. The Ramban associates Yibum with Nachala. And you'll see why in the Gemara. That Yibum is about the inheritance. And it's about keeping alive the different poles of the family in the inheritance. And therefore, anybody who is an inheritor or an, or, or a, an heir or a bequeather is in the picture. But the ideal is the brother. That's, he said, what the Chachamim. He doesn't attribute this to God. He doesn't attribute this to prophecy. He attributes this to brilliance about the human condition before the Torah was given, and therefore it was a common custom in the ancient world to do Yibum, ideally with the brother, but if not, then from some other male member of the family, whoever's closest. So it used to be that either the brother or the father or whoever is closest would marry the girl. We don't know if Yehuda was the first one to start this or not. And then he quotes a Midrash, says, Yehuda mitzvah It gives Yehuda the credit for initiating the idea. All right. When he got this secret about the human condition, he wanted to actually do it. Now, here we go. When the Torah came and prohibited the wife of certain relatives, again, not consanguinity, but in-laws, watch this, God himself decided, I'm going to permit one of these arayot in order to have Yibum continue, because I really like this idea of Yibum. And therefore he said, the prohibition of your brother's wife is lifted. He didn't want to permit all the other arayot, meaning this is my son's wife. This is my father's wife. That, of course, can't be because if I'm around and he had kids, but this is my son's wife. They didn't, the Torah didn't want to permit that. Um, uh, he said, because the ideal is the brother. In other words, he wanted it, the brother's wife. That's the only issue we're going to permit. Because that's actually the best form of evil. 
ולא בהם, כמו שהזכרתי, והיה נחשב לאכזריות גדולה באח כאשר ליחפוץ ליוון, ליבן. It was considered to be ruthlessness, insensitivity, and more than insensitivity, on the part of a brother who would not want to do Yibum. וקוראים אותו בית חלוצנל, he had this name. כי אתה חלוצנל, and he quotes a פסוק elsewhere in Tanakh, that God has left them. חלוצנל, the one who has abandoned them. So it's appropriate to do it's a sign of like abandonment. Now watch what he says, because he's going to pull all the things together. He says, which means post-matan Torah. In the early days, understood how valuable this was. So they said, if there are other members of the inheriting family, who are not prohibited as an erva to this woman, they should be the one to marry her. You see where he's going with this? This is, so he says that what we're reading about in the story of Ruth really is Yibum. It's Yibum in an expanded fashion. So watch how the Ramban describes the history of Yibum. Yibum starts out as an idea that people on their own figured out that when a tragedy happens and a man who's married dies, and they're all within the big chamula, dies without kids, that man stands at risk of being forgotten. So who should step in? Another male member of the family should take her in. Ideally, the brother, if not the father, if not, et cetera, somebody should step in and marry her and have kids, and that kid will be the one to carry on the position of the dead brother. Not the name, but the position of the dead brother. HaKadosh Baruch Hu was so enamored of this idea that when he gave us all of the Arayot, he left one that could open up, and that's Eshet Ha'ach, to keep Yibum going. He didn't want to permit all the Arayot, but just one of them, which, by the way, is what our whole sugi is about, about the other Arayot. Um, however, Chachmei Yisrael took this idea and said, well, this is such a good idea that we're going to continue to practice quasi-Yibum when the relationship is not otherwise forbidden, like Boaz and Ruth, because they're part of the same inheriting family. And that way, Elimelech's name is propagated, even though he had no biological descendants. Okay. So that's just as a kind of a broad introduction to the, to the issue of Yibum. Now, of course, Yibum brings with us, as we see, and this is going in a different direction than Rabban, an inherent contradiction. The Torah says, don't marry your brother's wife. Absolutely, it's an error. However, if you do, if he dies without kids, you must marry the brother's wife. So there is a passage in the Mechilta, famous passage in the Mechilta, um, which, by the way, you know from, from uh, another context, which is, Zachor v'shamor b'dibur echad. Now, what do Chazal mean when they say, Zachor v'shamor b'dibur echad? Zachor v'shamor b'dibur echad. Chazal said, Masachat Shavuot, Avchaf, Shamor v'zachor b'dibur achad. The implication, the halachic implication of it is, is that the Shamor of Shabbat, which is Lotaseh, and the Zachor of Shabbat, which is the Aseh, are tied together. And anybody who's obligated in one is obligated in the other, and therefore women are chayim and kiddush, etc. But Zachor v'shamor are also seen as something, not exactly opposite poles, but complementary poles. And the idea is that when God spoke at, at Har Sinai, he said both Zachor and Shamor, something that a person couldn't say and a person that your ears really can't hear, 
but he expressed both. So in the in the version in uh, in Vayikra, it's um, it's uh, sorry in the version in Shmot, it's Zachor, and the version in Dvarim, it's it's uh, Shamor. Uh, but you know they're both said. <clears throat> but then the the Mechilta goes on and picks up on a different thing. Now, this is different because the Torah says anybody who violates Shabbat is killed and also says you have to bring Korbanot on Shabbat, which involves violating Shabbat. God said the two of them one time. These are not complementary issues. These are antagonistic to each other. Ervat and the Yevama Yavo Aleha, Echad. Lo tilbash shatnez, it should be familiar. Ubdilim tasalacha, shem nemrubishad. In other words, the Midrash is using Zachor Vishamor as a paradigm and saying, even though God communicated two different and distinct messages at the same marker in the text, Zachor Yom Shabbat, Shamor Yom Shabbat, the two of them operate together. That softens up the next three, which are much more antagonistic to each other. But the notion is that and are not antagonistic, but they really operate together. And the same way, you may not have relations with your brother's wife, right? And, um, and to have Yibam with her are not at odds with each other. And now, Yushalmi in the Darim says something similar, but you'll see it a little bit different. Shav Vasheker, right? Lotan Ebracha Eid Sheker, Lotan Ebracha Eid Shav. Two versions he wrote. Shem Nemrubadiburachad. Now, Shav and Sheker are not antagonistic to each other. They are two different kinds of problematic swear oath, right? Zachor v'shamor, again, are not antagonistic to each other. They're just two different things about Shabbat. Those are antagonistic to each other. Again, antagonistic. There's more to them. Now, this is an interesting take. This is where B'nai Yosef come up to Moshe at the end of Sefer Bamidbar and say, Moshe, you just promised the daughter of Zavslavcha that they're going to get territory. What happens when they marry somebody from another Shevet? Our Shevet's going to lose land. And so Moshe says, indeed, the rule is such that property should not leave from tribe to tribe. And yet, Brotzlavchad can get territory. But how's that fixed? That's fixed by saying Brotzlavchad can only marry in Menashe. So there's a fix. So you see that this list is not a consistent list. Some of the items on this list are antagonistic. Some of these items on this list are complementary. And some of these items on this list are not at all at odds because one is folded inside the other. So what's the, what's holding this list together? And then Gedilim Tasalachad, Motobah Shatnez, which, of course, is not antagonistic, it's casuistic, meaning in a case, one's dealing with clothes you're not supposed to wear, and one's dealing with something you're supposed to put on your garments. So the idea here is, what, what holds all these together? These are utterances of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, which seems to be at least inconsistent. 
not necessarily antagonistic. They seem to be inconsistent. Because when you look at things in the tunnel view, all you see is you can't wear shotness. When you see things in the tunnel view, all you see is you have to bring Korban on Shabbat. When you see things in the tunnel view, all you know is you can't marry your brother's wife. The Midrash here is saying, HaKadosh Baruch Hu has a broader view. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu is even able to communicate a multiplicity of views in one utterance, which is impossible for humans. Picture a prism. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is the light, the prism is the Torah. And therefore it's refracted, and you see a pasuk here and a pasuk there, but they're refracting essential light of, of Torah, of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's wisdom. Right? So we see this particular issue. Now let's take a look at one interesting nuance that we're going to come up to in uh, at the towards the end of the second parak, um, just because it's an interesting little piece about Yibum, and we talked about it earlier on. The Mishnah in the second parak says, Mitzvah begadol yabem. Who should do Yibum? Which brother? The Mitzvah is that the eldest brother should do Yibum, which, by the way, doesn't seem to show up in the text at all, does it? The text doesn't say anything about an oldest brother. But if the younger brother went ahead first, then, okay, then it, it, the Yibum is valid. Let's see where that comes from. And again, I'm giving you the, the, this because I want you to get a taste of sort of the unique relationship Chachamim have with the text of the Parsha of Yibum and the Halakha. We've already seen some of that. We see the inherent difficulties uh, in, in it. And we saw it in the Ramban, how Yibum sort of expanded and contracted over time, revolving around the Parsha of the Torah. That's what said when the Bechor is born. Now notice what it says. Remember our Pasuk? The firstborn son is named after the brother. So, well, it doesn't really mean that. Watch how they darshan it. means who should do Yibum, the elder brother. We're not talking about the kid born, talk about the Miyabim. You understand that we've gone away from simple reading? So if the woman is infertile, then, you know, the mitzvah doesn't apply, etc. Meaning, the child who's born takes the place of his dead uncles, the one dead, his mother's dead husband's property. Maybe it means, give him the name, what we've been playing with, Yosef, Yosef, if the dead brother was called Johnny, then you call the kid Johnny. The answer is no. This is Menashe Ephraim when Yaakov elevates them and says, any other kids Yosef has are subsumed under the Menashe Ephraim names. Just like shame there doesn't mean your name, but rather your inheritance. Same thing here. All right. So now, skip the line. Amarava, and this is really phenomenal. Afagav the b'cholat Torah kula ain mikray yotzei midei pshuto. I'm going to say that again because it's got such a great ring to it. Afagav the b'cholat the b'cholat Torah kula, even though everywhere else in the Torah, ain mikray yotzei midei pshuto, which means a text cannot lose its literal meaning. Whatever, however we define pshat. Literal meaning, contextually appropriate meaning, historically anchored meaning, whatever you want to say, the text cannot lose that meaning anywhere else in the Torah. Rava says here the Gzerah Shavah 
of shame actually does remove the pshat. And therefore, it's not as if there's also a mitzvah to call the kid by that name. There's no mitzvah whatsoever. And yikare al-shev achivameit doesn't mean that at all. It means inheritance. Meaning, the bottom line principle of halacha, of parshanut is, ein mikra The text always means what the text means. This is the one exception. Now, by the way, there's other exceptions, like ayin tacharayin, and Zachal uh, Avashemesh. Okay, but we're going to leave that for right now. We love Zerashav, I mean, a shame mamash. Without the Zerashav, we would have thought we just give the kid the same name. Laman Kamazi Rachmana, who's God telling that to? Le'avan? Is he telling the, the, the brother who's taking the place you should call the kid by that name? Then Yakum Hashem Achicha. It shouldn't be Achiv, it should be Achicha. He should take the name of your brother. If it's telling the Beit it should be say the kid should have the name of his father's aunt, brother, that uncle, right? Maybe what's happening with the Torah is telling that this is all what would happen if we didn't have the Zerah Shabbat. And if we thought shame actually meant name, which it doesn't mean, maybe what it meant was that the Hashem is telling the Beit to tell the Yavam, call him by your brother's name. But it doesn't matter because I taught Zerashav Pikdelegamre, the Zerashav came and totally removed. Okay? And now you'll see in a very short version the Sifri does the same thing. You see those at the top of the names in this. Meaning, he, 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 the child is born, he takes the place of his brother in any case without calling the name. This doesn't go through all the. the Nuances that we just had. Which means, who's the Bechor now? And that's what the Mishnah, that's what we started the Mishnah. Who's the Bechor in the Pasuk? Not the son, not the result of the Yibum, but the Miyabem. Bechor means the eldest brother should be the one to step in and take the girl. Now I want to take you back to the Pasukim and show you how difficult of a read that is. Here it is. Two brothers live together back here. One of them dies without sons. The wife of the dead guy should not leave the family to some outsider. Rather, Yavam should have relations with her. Marry her and take her evil. And the Bechor that she gives birth to takes the place of the brother. And how are we reading that? The Bechor here is not the one she gives birth to, but rather. The Bechor is telling you the Yavam in Pasuk Hay should be the Bechor. You understand that we're going far field of shot. And that's why Rava is kind of astounded and says, generally, we can't avoid shot. But here it's different. So I want to take a look together with you. And I'm not sure how much more we'll be able to do than this. But at this beautiful, beautiful, just as always, the, Ram, the Rambam is just the, 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 the paragon of clarity and organization. The Rambam, as you know, wrote quite a number of books, and he wrote three great halachic works, along with a lot of other ones, including Chuvot and including Hilchot Rushalmi and other things. The three famous works that he wrote were the Perusha Mishnayot, his commentary on the Mishnah, he had Sefer Mitzvot, both those were written in Arabic, and of course, the Magnus Opus, which is 
Mishnei Torah. In Perusha Mishnah, which he started when he was 17, and he finished when he was 30, uh, the Rambam gives an introduction to Masachet Yevamot, and we're going to read his introduction. I'll let the Rambam speak for himself. Aktim Kalim Zu. I'm going to give a few introduction, introductory rules. Then I'll start explaining. We're going to listen only at the rules. By the way, he does not do this with any other Masachet because Yevamot is that intricate. There's four rules that you need to know before you start getting in all the details. Rule number one. You have a paternal brother and he dies. Dafka, paternal. Without living children. By the way, if he had kids and they predeceased him, same thing, no kids. And he has one or several wives. Rule number one. Ruvain died without kids, and Ruvain had three wives. Belinda, Susie, and Barbara. Right? I have no idea why I picked those names. Right? Um, uh, and, uh, and then the Yavam only has to do either Chalitz or Yibum with one of them. He should, because how is he castigated? He's the one who will not build up the house of his brother, implying, you don't have to build one house. So it's not like all the wives have to be taken care of. One wife has to either have Yibum or Chalitza, and the rest are finished. If he did Chalitza or Yibum, who true Hashar, the rest of the wives are free to go. Below Chalitza, below Yibum. Now let's try it this way. Let's say Ruben Shimon Levi Yehuda Yisachar. Right? And Ruben has one or several wives. Only one of the brothers. Has to do on one of the wives. So in other words, Ruben dies with Belinda, Susie, and Barbara as his wives. No kids. He dies and he's got Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, Yisachar, and Zvulun as brothers. Zvulun could do Yibo on Belinda and everything's done. Levi can do Chalitza on Barbara and everything's done. One brother, one wife, finished. That's all we need. Rule number two. Hakal Shini. And this is a very good introduction to just studying the Masachet. Imet Ha'ach. So let's say Ruven died. Bineach he left a wife. And this brother was prohibited, this wife was prohibited to his brother. This is our Mishnah. Or was prohibited to one of the brothers who is otherwise available for Yibum. Let's say he died and left a lot of brothers. And let's say that Ruvain had married Shimon's daughter. So Ruvain dies. And now his wife can't marry Shimon because that's her father. She could marry Levi or, she, or one of the others. Right? Which Ruben's wife was the daughter of Shimon. Or Achot Ishto, right? His wife's sister. The one brother who's prohibited to her does not do Yibum. We saw this on Daf Gimbal. Aleha, Aleha, 
and, and now the Rambam explains that that limut. When I said don't take the two of them together. So Ruvain and Shimon marry Leah and Rachel, brothers, sisters, totally legit. Ruvain dies. Shimon does not take Leah. Right? And from there we extend it out to all other arayot. Okay? So rule number one is Yibam and Chalitza, one brother, one wife. Rule number two is that if one of the brothers has a prohibited, otherwise prohibited relationship besides Ishtak with the wife, he does not do Yibam or Chalitza on her, another brother can. Ruvain dies and left Belinda, Susie, and Barbara. And Susie is Shimon's daughter. Guess what? Belinda, Susie, and Barbara are Ruvain's wives. Ruvain died, and they all fall to Shimon. And Susie is Shimon's daughter. Shimon can't do Yibam on Susie. He also can't do Yibam on Belinda Barbara. Right? And here's the tradition. Only a house where he can build the whole house. He can build part of it. Meaning, this is another way around the Tzara issue. If you cannot build with this, with everybody in the house, you can't build with anybody in the house. Meaning, if one of these wives is off limits to you, they're all off limits. It has to be a house that you could build. All right, so now, first one is the Mitzvah of Yibu. The second one is the Yisr of Erva. The third is Tzarat Erva. And what's the fourth? Any girl who could have Yibum Doraita, she needs chalitza, meaning any girl who midoraita yibum could be applicable, is not free to marry outside the family without chalitza. But let's say yibum's off the table, like for Susie who fell to her own father. She doesn't need chalitza. So now, what? Stay with me for a second here. Ruvain marries Belinda, Susie, and Barbara. Susie Shimon's daughter. Ruvain and Shimon are the only two brothers here. Ruvain dies. What happens to Susie? Can Susie have Yibum with her own father? No. No. Can Belinda have Yibum with Shimon? No, because she's Sarah Susie. She's Susie Sarah. Right? Now. Does Shimon have to give her chalitza to release her? No. No. Can she marry a Kohen now? Sure. She's just a widow. Right? Now, let's say that we got just Belinda and Barbara, no family. Ruvain dies and leaves Belinda and Barbara. Shimon doesn't want to marry them. Shimon gives Belinda chalitza. Belinda now cannot marry a Kohen. So you see that that being exempt from chalitza really is a leg up in a way. Okay. Okay. Um, 
Good. Here's the tradition. Only somebody who could have Yibum needs Chalitza. By the way, these rules are going to come back over and over and over in the first half of Masachet, so it's good to really know them. Now that you know these rules, I can start explaining the Masachet. Let's do a little bit. First of all, I gave you here a little lexicon. All right, Yibum, we know what that is. Chalitz, we know what that is. Sarah, we know what that is, right? Co-wife? What's Sarat Sarah? Co-wife of a co-wife. How's a co-wife of a co-wife? What does that mean? If you fall to someone who's also who's married, they become your co-wife. Right. So so we have Belinda, Susie, and Barbara, right? Ruben's wives. Okay. Now, Shimon is Susie's father, but there's Levi who's not. Okay. So the three of them fall. Shimon's out of the picture, but they fall to Levi. So Levi takes Belinda. All right. Now. Belinda, Levi then dies, and now Belinda falls to Yehuda. And Yehuda marries Belinda, and, and, and Yehuda had another wife, Raquel. Right? Now, Yehuda dies, can Raquel marry Shimon? The answer is no. Because who's Raquel? Sarat Sarah of Susie, even though Susie's way out of the picture now. That's Sarat Sarah. Okay, two more words that we did not encounter, but we have to see them. And then probably with that, we'll have to close it up. And um, very likely the last sugya here, which is um, about uh, Zika, um, right here, we're going to actually touch on in probably two weeks. All right, uh, and that is Ma'amar. Now, Ma'amar works as follows. Um, Let's start with this. Just a young couple, never married before, no dead people, and it's a beautiful family. Guy wants to marry the girl. What does he have to do? The two of them want to get married. They agree to get married. What's What does he have to do? So he has to do an act, which we call Kiddushin, in which he, one of the ways is he gives her something of value in front of witnesses, with his Tabat, for instance, right? And then there's Kiddushin. And at some point later, either five minutes later or a year later or somewhere in between, they then have a, have a party where they move in together and they have Sherebrachot and they got a Ketubah and that's called a wedding. Okay, good. What about Yibum? Yibum, if you think about it, the Kiddushin already sort of happened. Because when the original brother married the girl, he had Kiddushin. And there are those who theorize that those Kiddushin continue when the brother dies and she falls to the living brother, that Kiddushin motivates it forward. But let me just ask you this. What does a Yavam have to do? My brother died and left his wife. What do I have to do? I have to take her to have relations with her. But let's all agree, that's not very nice. Not very tsanua, not very proper. So Chachamim instituted a thing that they called Ma'amar, which is basically Kiddushin, Midra Banan, before doing Yibum. 
However, Mamar has a particular halachic impact, which we're going to discover along the way, where it changes the relationship. Meaning, Ruvain dies, Belinda and Barbara, Susie's out there, Belinda and Barbara fall to Shimon. Shimon gives Belinda Kiddushin, which means, okay, we're going to have Yibam in a little while, but in the meantime, I want you to have a little time to mourn, and I need a little time to get together, right? Okay, here's Kiddushin. We're going to call it Mamar, it's Kiddushin to Rabbanan. Belinda's status is now different than it was before Mamar, even though it's all the Rabbanan. And we're going to discover that. The last word that I want to introduce you to is a word called, word called Zika. Zika literally means dependence. And Zika, which is a phenomenal sugi by itself at the very beginning of the second parak, and I have a little piece of it here, Yesh Zika, Rein Zika, is when a woman falls to a man, is there already a relationship established with its impact? Or is there just an obligation to create the relationship? Yesh Zika o Ein Zika. And that's going to give us lots of fun opportunities to explore the nature of the relationship and the dependence between them. What we've taken a look at over the last uh, hour is gave an introduction to Masachet Divamot. We looked at the core parasha in Parashat Kitetse. We then looked at some of the nuances in the text that were a little bit unusual. We then looked at the two Kipsukim and the Parsha Varayot that impact on this, one of which is, of course, the prohibition of Eshet Ha'ach that gets lifted here. And then the prohibition of Achotisha with Litzor and Aleha. And then we saw the story of Ruth and Boaz and its impact and the story of Yehuda, Er, Onan, and Tamar and that's impact. And then we saw the Ramban, very important Ramban about Yibum there. And then we moved on and saw the whole notion when Chazal dealt with Yibum and Eshetaach as finding a way to make them non-antagonistic to each other, uh, akin to violating Shabbat to bring korbanot and wearing tzitzit with the Roshatnas, etc. Uh, we saw different formulations of that. And then we looked into the Rambam's introduction uh, uh, with the four principles that he helped to get us started on seeing the broader picture of Yibamot, of Yibum. And although this wasn't last, but we also looked at the curious uh, passage about Vayabachor, that Vayabachor Sheteled gets transmogrified into not the child that's born, but rather the one who's supposed to do the Yibum, being the eldest brother, Mitzvah Begadol Yabem, and Rava's famous statement that even though everywhere else, in Mikrayot, say here the text is supposed to be understood halachically away from Pshat to understand that Habbechor is not a reference to the child born, but rather to the one who is doing evil.